You're listening to Mr. Open Banking, the only podcast dedicated to exploring the open banking movement. Whether you're a financial expert, banking executive, or everyday consumer, open banking affects everyone and will change the way we interact with our money. I'm A.L. Savan, your host. This episode is brought to you by Radium, powering the world's most trusted data sharing ecosystems. Open banking is often cast as an antidote to the dominance of big banks. Given that its origins stem from the great financial crisis of 2008, this perspective is not terribly surprising. During the crisis, the term too big to fail became increasingly popular. Endless quantitative easing in the U.S. and harsh austerity measures in Europe severely damaged trust in the global banking system. In response, Europe's PSD2 regulation and the UK's CMA order were intended to open the market to more competition, at least in part as a means of ensuring that national economies were not held hostage by a handful of giant banks. As a result, open banking and big banks tend to find themselves on opposite ends of the arena. What's good for one can't possibly be good for the other. But is this characterization fair? Does open banking have to be a threat to big banks, or can it be turned into an opportunity? Do all the big banks out there want to crush open banking, or are there some who are in fact embracing it instead? While Europe, the UK, and other regions responded to the great financial crisis with regulated open banking, the US did little in terms of regulation. Nevertheless, open banking adoption grew tremendously. While the big banks in the US were not pushed by regulation, they moved towards open banking anyway. In fact, as you'll hear in this episode, Many would say they were moving well in the direction of open banking long before the great financial crisis ever began. To understand why, we turn to our guest, who is here to provide us all with a view from the top. Paul LaRusso is a business leader with over 20 years of experience in mobile, financial services, and technology. Paul is the CEO of Acoya, a bank-sanctioned data access network that is leading the way in the U.S. open finance sector, driven by a mission to give consumers secure access to and control over their financial data. Prior to joining Acoya, Paul served as the head of open banking and connected banking at J.P. Morgan Chase, where he held technology leadership positions for almost 15 years. In that time, He also became a board member and then co-chair at the Financial Data Exchange, which governs the dominant U.S. open banking standard. Today, as head of Acoya, Paul aims to transform the way people share their data, making it more secure, private, reliable, and transparent. Paul, thank you for joining us. Hi, Eyal. It's a pleasure to be here. With assets of over $2.5 trillion, J.P. Morgan Chase is the largest bank in the world, 
you were there on the technology side, closing on 15 years. Tell us what that was like. It was an amazing 15 years working for J.P. Morgan Chase. Just had some great relationships, some amazing support from leadership, and got to work on some very exciting and interesting products. Now, in April of 2019, your role at JPMC changes from head of data aggregation to head of open banking and connected banking. What prompted that change? And how did your new role differ from the old one? I think the industry was changing. And if you look back at that time, you had quite a number of things going on, particularly in the open banking space. And I think actually it's important to look back even further on some of the history of open banking in the U.S. and where it came from. I think about three key phases that we went through in the industry and what I saw to get us where we are today. If we go all the way back to the beginning of open banking in the U.S., back to the late 90s and early 2000s, the days of driven by desktop apps and early online banking experiences. We saw apps like Intuit, Quicken, Microsoft Money, even CheckFree, which was working on aggregating bank data for bill presentment. And what was interesting, it, those three actually got together to form one of the first standards in OFX. And it was a great start, but there wasn't mass adoption. And as I move on to the second phase, this is actually the exact same time I joined J.P. Morgan Chase with my first role there working on mobile banking. This second phase is in the, I'll call it 2007 to 2014. And I think of that as this smartphone and mobile app boom. And that included the rollout of the iPhone, iOS, later on Android. And that really changed the game for what I was seeing of how consumers were managing their money. I recall in the early days, the App Store, Apple saw about one and a half billion downloads within the first 12 months. And for digital banking and open banking, what that meant is that there were more apps rolling out and getting to scale quicker. I remember seeing apps like Mint and Venmo and then Personal Capital, later on apps like Acorns, Robinhood, Coinbase, Truebill, and, and the list goes on. And you saw a larger demand to connect to banks, to connect to bank infrastructure. And we started to see that mass adoption. And then I think a little bit to this third phase, and maybe it's more of an inflection point versus a phase, but around 2015, 2016, I think there were a couple noteworthy things that happened. With the mass adoption of financial apps and linking banks, there was a much bigger strain that put on the bank systems, which ultimately came to a tipping point. And this resulted in a major traffic jam with some of the big banks and even prevented some parties and aggregators from accessing data for a brief period. I recall at some point that probably more than half of online banking traffic was coming from third parties and the bank systems weren't built for that. And it wasn't sustainable. You had some incidents that were impacting customers trying to engage directly with the bank. And that wasn't good. The other noteworthy thing I saw is you saw bank CEOs starting to be more vocal 
on the subject. While I was at Chase, it's probably around 2016, Jamie Dimon addressed it in his letter to shareholders. He talked about the need to protect customers, their data, the company. And we started to see some things when customers do give out access to third parties. Sometimes data was sold. Sometimes data was even being accessed through the, although customers are no longer using the apps. And I think it highlighted the need for things around data minimization, informed consent, moving away from giving out bank passwords and going into tokens. And then the third thing that happened, although it wasn't directly impactful to the U.S., it was going on the rest of the world, is the passing of PSD2 around 2015, and then later on incorporating that a couple years later, which kind of brings us to the beginning of the today period, where I call the partnership period. It took the banks, in particular in my position, of really pivoting and starting to think about how we play in this space, how we partner, how we develop amazing products and experiences for our customers that now involve moving outside the walls of J.P. Morgan Chase and doing it in a safe and secure ecosystem to benefit consumers. So it set the stage for this runway that we're on now around greater partnerships and working together to collaborate to further evolve consumer benefits in open banking and open finance. That's a fascinating summary of the U.S. open banking timeline, notable because the story you tell is one of market demand. Going back to the 90s and then through the period of the early fintech apps and this demand for aggregation and ultimately this idea of so much strain being put on the system that it had to be done better. Is that the way you see it, that ultimately open banking in the U.S. has been market-driven? It hasn't required regulation. It has been market-driven up to this point. We had in the U.S. the CFPB come out with guidelines back in 2017 They weren't prescriptive. They were generally good themes that I think all companies and players in the ecosystem should have been following probably already. But for the most part, it has been operating as a market-led solution. We saw that with banks figuring out how to set up partnerships with third parties, aggregators, fintechs, and doing a number of bilaterals. That didn't happen until 2017. Chase and Intuit announced the first data sharing deal in the beginning of 2017. That was the first one that happened. And I think that really set a stage then as a lot more companies got involved and started working through those. And then the other thing the U.S. did was a lot of collaboration across the industry by setting up standard bodies like Financial Data Exchange or FDX. And again, I think is another great example of That thing started with probably about 20 or so companies in the beginning coming together with the mission to define a common interoperable standard for how data in the U.S. could be accessed and permissioned and shared. And that organization has been able to grow as well. And FDX owes its pedigree to the OFX standard that you mentioned from the early 90s. So it's been something of a straight line Do you think that's why some 
refer to the U.S. as an open banking leader, despite objections from other regions. I think in adoption, you could say there's a a leadership there. Things I would point to is that it's very common for North Americans who have at some point in their digital banking experience have linked a third-party app to their banking account. The latest statistics I saw on that was about eight out of 10 users have done that at some point. That's a lot. And then if you look at the standards body like FDX, they're now over 53 million consumer accounts in the U.S. using the standard. That's also a lot. It's a big number. I'd like to take a moment to talk about screen scraping. In that third phase, you talked about protecting the customer. Jamie Dimon mentioned it. And moving away from shared credentials, those that power screen scraping, and towards tokenization. In Europe and elsewhere, screen scraping is open banking heresy. The definition of open banking is often tied up in its elimination. But in the U.S., as you described, it was not just tolerated, but embraced for decades. Why do you think it was so accepted in the U.S.? I don't know if it was accepted, but it did exist. Look, I think it's a journey. When you think about all the components that need to be put in place to shift an entire industry, there's the investment, the technology, but there's also the people and the skills and support from leadership. There's a cultural pivot of now building products and services that, yes, will benefit your customers, but may also benefit someone else's customers. And I think it takes time to approach it with a principles-based approach to really figure out how you play in this space and what is important to your organization. And when you have all that in place, then you go through things like bilaterals and the build-out of APIs and products and even on the front end of consumer consent and authorization and management consoles for dashboards and so forth. So you're building those experiences for how it's going to benefit customers in addition to the technology, the implementation, of course, standardizing this and collaborating with the industry on standards. And then, of course, there's the ongoing management and oversight. It's not a flip of the switch. It does take some time. But I think once you get the principles set up and the support behind it, it can be done. In October of 2022, Chase fully eliminated screen scraping. And it was the first bank to announce that. And that's a lot of benefits for consumers who now have greater visibility and control over their data and still able to use all the apps that they want to use to help them manage their finances. The history of open banking often begins with European regulation. But as we've heard from Paul, its history actually goes back much further, the late 90s, 
banks had finally started offering reasonable online banking experiences. Inevitably, this led consumers to link and integrate their banking data with other applications like accounting packages and financial planning tools. When mobile came on the scene, the fintech market quickly exploded, offering a multitude of new apps for managing your money, leading to more and more demand for banks to share their data. Not because a regulator told them to, but because their customers told them to. Adjusting to this new demand required banks to face an inconvenient truth that they can't be all things to all people. At the smart banks, which were often the biggest, bank culture started to shift towards acceptance of data sharing as the new reality. Common standards began to emerge to let data be shared more securely, more consistently, and at scale. In the US, only then did regulators come out of the woodwork to help guide the market in implementing these standards the right way. Efforts that continue to this day. In November of 2022, the US Consumer Financial Protection Bureau announced that open banking regulations were coming. That's where Paul and I go next. What is your opinion on the regulatory guidance provided by the CFPB so far? Yeah, it's a great question. I'm actually very positive about it. My interpretation was a couple of key takeaways. First is that the CFPB isn't looking to micromanage open banking in the U.S. And market-led standards can be leveraged to create an ecosystem that can benefit consumers. But making sure that these market-led initiatives are inclusive to institutions of all sizes, including new entrants and challengers. The second was some comments that the director had about screen scraping that it's not a viable means for data access. And it's not something that we see as being part of the financial infrastructure in the future. And then I think that the other thing is around liability. I think we should expect to see something that is addressed around there to make it clear to banks or holders of data that they can't always be liable for what happens maybe downstream from bad actors and the other side. So I think that was a important component. And the last is that we should see a proposal in October. And it sounds like that's on track. We're really excited to, to see what that looks like. Are there transferable concepts, approaches, or ideas out there that the U.S. could learn from? Yeah, UK open banking has been very transparent around performance metrics. You have visibility into things around API availability, API response time. And while they may sound like minor things, those are critical to the developer experience and the consumer experience. Let's switch gears now to your new role. Earlier this year, you became CEO of Akoya. In your own words, what is Akoya? Akoya is a pro-consumer, pro-competitive data access network. 
and it's an additional option for consumers to share their data from one company to another. That sounds a lot like a Plaid or an MX or a Yodely. What makes Akoya different from the other aggregators out there? There are some similar concepts around helping consumers connect and share data. 100% of Akoya's traffic to financial institutions goes through APIs. Akoya doesn't ask for consumer passwords. It doesn't screen scrape. And it's really ensuring that all connections and all consumer requests deliver transparency and control to the consumer and give them the ability to not only connect, but also manage and revoke that access. So I think some similar intentions, but some practices that are different. Now, Akoya is backed by some of the leading players in the financial services industry, including Fidelity, the Clearinghouse, and 11 major banks, including JPMC. In your view, why is having a bank-sanctioned solution so important? What is the gap that Akoya is able to fill? I think the benefit has been that the principles are aligned. Principles around security and customer control and also customer convenience and making sure access is available and easy to do, as well as principles around data minimization and privacy. We're helping consumers connect and manage their finances and helping accelerate the availability of secure data. Acquia is able to work with banks and help them manage how they could get to market quicker with an open finance playbook. And being someone who's been on the other side of this, there's a lot to do. And we're also inclusive to banks as clients, fintechs as clients, even other data access networks and other aggregators we work with as well. Having that concept of really trying to work with the entire financial ecosystem to deliver great value to customers. You speak about Akoya's mission with clear personal passion. What makes their mission so important to you personally? I believe in this mission of giving people control over their financial information and really over their money and doing it in a trusted and responsible way. But to be a trusted network and to have that trust with consumers that we're not taking a password or restoring a password, Koya doesn't sell data, and Koya doesn't use customer-sensitive information to develop products and services maybe the customer didn't come here to sign up for. I'm passionate about the fact that it's very much set up to serve that consumer for the particular application they want to use and give them that control and visibility to help them with their finances. Data sharing done the right way. I believe so.
despite coming from the world's largest bank and holding the reins at a major market player, Paul sees regulatory efforts as a positive. He is eager for firm guidance from the CFPB around the elimination of screen scraping, the introduction of a liability model, and proposals create a more level playing field. That's because Paul sees competition as being good for everyone, not just for consumers and fintechs, but for the big banks too. More to the point, he sees secure, reliable data sharing as being a key part of making that competition happen, leading to a whole new level of financial services. That's why earlier this year, he took the helm at Acoya, a pro-consumer, pro-competitive data access network owned by 13 of the biggest financial institutions in the US market. Far from fighting against open banking, Akoya is doing whatever they can to make it happen in a way that's available to everyone. Because Paul and his team firmly believe that consumers should be able to control their own data, whether regulation says so or not. Nevertheless, there will continue to be skeptics. Executives at big banks the world over continue to treat open banking with suspicion, doubt, and fear. This next section is for them. Our show is international, so let's try and help the other big banks out there a little bit. What would you say to an executive, perhaps working at one of the biggest banks in their country, who says they don't like open banking, they don't see the point of it, and if given a choice, they simply wouldn't do it? You've got to listen to your customers. and. You've got to be where your customers want to be. And we know this from the data that some customers value the ability to supplement their financial services with additional applications. I think you've got to make a decision around why you want to be in this. Even for regions where it's compliance-driven, I still think it needs to be more than just compliance. And as I reflect back on why I did it at J.P. Morgan Chase, was really around principles. We had four principles, and we used these principles to guide us through everything from agreements to developing products to customer experience. And those four principles were around security, ensuring the right security is in place in this space and protecting customers, protecting their sensitive information. The second was around customer control and ensuring that the customer is always put in the driver's seat to determine where they want to go and how. The third was around convenience, is making sure that customers had access And it was easy for them to do these things. We felt that was an important part of how you would associate your relationship with a bank, how easy it is for me to connect to an application of my choice. 
And the fourth was around privacy and ensuring that those applications and parties that you work with are also striving to maintain industry best practices for uh, data privacy and data minimization. And oh, by the way, it will also benefit our own customers as you look to provide them products and services on your own platforms. For any company in the space who is interacting with that consumer, there's benefits to offer them more products and services directly as well through open banking features and functionality. Let me play devil's advocate on behalf of the big banks out there. If I were them, I might say to that, look, I like where I am. I have all the customers, I have all the money, and I have all the data. Why would I go out of my way to give this stuff up? Why on earth would I help others compete with me? First off, I think you've got to start with a customer and look back at what the customer wants to do. And the data says that most customers want some sort of application to help them with their finances. I think you need to listen to where the customer wants to be. So it really starts with the customer and making sure you're servicing their needs, but also ensuring your own company principles on when you go into this space, what is important for you, whether that's something similar like security, customer control and convenience and privacy, or if there are other principles. But I think you've got to really identify what those priorities are and work through that while keeping the customer at the forefront of all your decisions. Okay, let's say you convinced me. What kind of playbook would you offer the big banks out there who want to embrace open banking? You mentioned the four principles, security, control, convenience, and privacy. But what do I do next? How do I start going down this road? Yeah, so there's a couple additional components to actually get this thing stood up. One is around the partnerships or the agreements of who you're going to work with. What services do your customers want to use? Or what are the most popular applications that your customers like? And start to prioritize and figure out what those experiences look like for the consumer and work backwards from there. The second is around the product and the technology. But I think you've got to start with that first one around understanding how your customers are going to be using these services. Of course, you've got to build the products and services, extraction of the data from the various systems of records within your organizations, creating the data sets and the mapping of that data, hopefully into some sort of standard and building all of the technology to go and actually do the integrations. Then there's the implementation part of rollout and phasing that through and ensuring you treat that as any different product with a significant amount of testing and validation and recording of how that's going from not only performance, but how consumers are adopting and adoption rates and success going through funnels of consent and so forth. And then there's that ongoing management and oversight. 
how you continue to ensure that you're working with parties who are aligned with your principles, adhering to things like minimum control requirements and data security, and ensuring you have the mechanisms in place to manage that ongoing as more and more of your customers adopt these services and stay connected with your organization. You have been known to describe open banking as a two-way street. What do you mean by that? Thinking where the customer is in this landscape, they are at the center and giving the customer the ability to access all of their information regardless of where it sits. And sometimes that information sits with a bank and sometimes it sits with financial technology company. And sometimes the customer wants to get data from a bank to another bank. Sometimes it's a bank to a fintech and sometimes it could even be a fintech back to a bank. The point here is that it always goes both ways, but it starts with the consumer. Some of the narrative in the past has been around, we just need to get more banks to open up data. And while that's true, the landscape has shifted and customers are interacting with digital wallets and digital payment applications, and not all of them are banks. And I think we as an industry need to put the consumer at the center of this and look for ways where we can deliver equal access to consumers for their data. And in response to these shifting consumer demands, banks, fintechs, the entire sector has moved into what you call the partnership period. What is the partnership period? We're in a period where there's been a significant amount of partnerships and bilateral agreements between a number of banks, data access networks, third parties, and so forth. Tracing back to the early 2017s when this whole thing started. But we're in that phase now, right, of a multiple number of partnerships and deals between banks, fintechs, aggregators have all been announced, and there's more coming. And I think that's a significant shift from where we were even just eight, nine, 10 years ago. But it's more than just bilaterals. It's partnerships with regulators, partnerships across the industry. A great example of this is the collaboration we've been able to do in the financial data exchange And we talked about the expansion of that organization, now over 200 members and the number of consumer accounts using that standard, 53 million. So you're seeing these partnerships in many forms of agreements and collaboration and industry standards, partnerships with regulators and really trying to shape that landscape. And Akoya intends to be a key part of that. It does. I think we're in a great position. I think of it as this mission that we at Akoya can provide around giving people greater control over their money 
and helping them live better financial lives. And I think we can deliver on that through Akoya by being a trusted and a reliable network for the entire financial services industry. None of this stuff, if you look back to the last two decades, none of this stuff has happened without partnerships. This product or platform and open banking program is unique that all of it requires some type of partnership and working with others. And sometimes that means working with others who may have different views from you on particular topics. But I think finding some common ground, finding some overlap and alignment for the greater good of more people is the right thing to do. And I feel like we're in a great position to deliver on that in the future. Paul, where can our guests find out more about you and your work with Akoya? Guests can visit akoya.com and see everything that's happening from our product and platform. And in addition to a lot of the partnerships that we've announced and, and are working on. So would welcome everyone to learn more. Thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you, Al, and thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure as well. If you hold one of the top seats in one of the top banks in the world, open banking can look a little scary. You're responsible for millions of customers, billions in assets, terabytes of confidential customer data. And here comes this movement trying to seemingly tear it all down. It doesn't have to be that way. Smart banks, even the biggest, have come to understand that open banking is not driven by retaliatory regulations, nor is it driven by tech companies hungry for a piece of their pie. In the end, open banking is driven by their customers. In our increasingly digital world, where data has become such an intrinsic part of our lives, asking for that data to be portable and shareable is not just reasonable, it's a natural progression of a journey we have all been on since the early days of the Internet. If they are honest with themselves, big banks must realize that to truly service their customers in the digital age, they have to support them in sharing their data. Period. To go down this road, Paul offers some advice. Use JPMC's four principles, security, control, convenience, and privacy as a starting point, but make them your own. Figure out who your customers want to share data with and why. Extract and organize your data based on common standards. And finally, accept that you can't be all things to all people and prepare your organization to build robust strategic partnerships with whomever can make your customers' financial lives better. Because being ready for the open future means putting your customers' needs first, even from the top.
Thanks for listening to Mr. Open Banking, the podcast that explores the ongoing evolution of open banking and its impact on our lives. Make no mistake, the rise of open banking is going to change financial services forever, and we will be covering that story every step of the way. This is your host, A.L. Savan. Until next time. This episode of Mr. Open Banking was made possible by Radium, powering the world's most trusted data-sharing ecosystems. To learn more, visit radium.com.